The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. We'll be reading through verse 20 this morning. And this portion of God's word follows Moses explaining to the people that if they enter the promised land and are faithful, God is going to bless them abundantly. And he is warning them not to turn to their abundance and away from God. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning at verse 11, the word of the Lord. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God, by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 5. We'll be reading through verse 15 this morning. The word of our God. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, Find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here 
is this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. When the Son of God comes into this world, he brings a crisis with him. As John the Baptist put it, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly cleanse his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That is the crisis. To those who receive him, Jesus gives them the authority, the right, the power to become children of God. And God the Father adopts us. He brings us into his family and he gives us the Holy Spirit to be both with us and in us. But to those who reject the Son of God, there is nothing left for them but the eternal wrath of Almighty God. When the Son of God comes into this world, he brings a crisis with him. And this crisis continues wherever the news about Jesus is proclaimed. Uh, the Apostle Paul will later make this point while he's preaching on the Areopagus in Athens. Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This morning we're going to be looking at the very first time that Jesus sends his disciples out on a missionary journey without him. And therefore we are going to be looking at the very first time that Jesus is going to be creating a crisis, not through his own personal presence, but through the presence of his authoritative representatives. As the apostles go and extend his mission, they extend this crisis to the people of Israel. We're going to look at this passage under five main headings. First, one mission. One mission. Second, one message. Third, signs of the apostles. Fourth, the Lord will provide. And fifth, truth and consequences. I said that kind of fast. Let me give those to you again. These are the five main headings that we're going to look at this morning's passage under. First, one mission. Second, one message. Third, signs of the apostles. Fourth, the Lord will provide. And fifth, truth and consequences. We begin with the fact that Jesus is sending his disciples out on a narrowly defined mission. Uh, look at verses 5 and 6 with me. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now at first blush, uh, those instructions might seem a little bit surprising. Uh, Jesus, after all, has already been ministering to Gentiles. And, and we know that the gospel, according to Matthew, is heading forward to this conclusion, which is the Great Commission. 
where Jesus is going to send us out to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth, specifically to all the people groups and all the Gentiles. We're going to tell them about Jesus and the good news of his substitutionary death, and we are sent out to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has taught us. So what exactly is Jesus doing here? Well, we should realize that Jesus cares a great deal about the Gentiles. He's already healed some. He's cast demons out of some. And in fact, back in chapter 8, Jesus says a really extraordinary thing. Uh, He's healing a, a centurion servant, and he says of this centurion, not merely a Gentile, mind you, but a Roman soldier, that of this centurion, he had greater faith than he has found anywhere among the Jewish people in Israel. See, Jesus cares about the Samaritans and the Gentiles. Jesus came to save the Samaritans and the Gentiles. Yet nevertheless, when Jesus sends out the disciples on their first mission, he says, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So what exactly is going on? Well, first, Jesus is Israel's Messiah. He's a Jewish Messiah. The living God had so identified with his old covenant people that the old covenant church is identified by God as his very own son. Isn't that what the Lord says to Pharaoh? Israel is my son, my firstborn son. Let my people go. Therefore, the eternal son of God came to save the covenanted son of God. That's how this works. Although the church of Jesus Christ will ultimately be made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and language, this does not mean that the Lord stopped the care about his ancient people or that he fails to show covenant faithfulness to the children of the promise. As the Apostle Paul would later put it, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. It is important that the gospel goes to the Jew first in order to make clear that Jesus isn't starting a new religion for the Gentiles. Right? The, the, the Jews can keep their old religion, and Jesus is starting a new religion for the Gentiles as though God is going to have two families, and Jesus is going to have two brides. But beloved, our Lord and Savior is not a polygamist. And so he comes to gather in Israel as his people. He is their long-hoped-for Messiah. It is important that the gospel goes to the Jew first in order to demonstrate the Lord's covenant faithfulness with his chosen people. I want to slow down a minute and ask you to focus on a simple phrase you might not have thought about very much. The lost sheep. Do you know that phrase, lost sheep, can only be applied to people who are part of the covenant community. When he sends out the disciples for lost sheep, the Gentiles are not lost sheep. They're not sheep at all. But, But the Jewish people, they are those who have received the promises, the covenants, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, and the very word of God. They are set apart for God in a special way as his own treasured possession. And therefore, in that sense, they are positionally holy. And yet, 
Though they are sheep in that sense, they are very far from their shepherd. And so Jesus is sending out these disciples saying, come home. The king has come. The good shepherd is here. This is where you belong. Now, Lord willing, um, we will see next week that this special mission to the lost sheep of the fallen house of Israel will continue for a generation. By the way, the gospel keeps going to the Jews to the end of time. It goes to everybody. But this special mission that goes to the nation of Israel will continue for one generation until the Lord destroys Jerusalem in 70 A.D. That is, this narrowly focused mission will overlap for a generation with the Great Commission, where the Lord sends us to spread the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike, even to the ends of the earth. For now, Jesus sends out his disciples with fishing rods and not a broad net. He has a very narrow mission for them to undertake, and that's to go to the, not simply to Jews, but those Jews who are right there in the nation of Israel. There is, however, also a very practical aspect to Jesus sending them on this very narrow mission. This is the first time the disciples are going out on their own. Now, any good mentor realizes that you got to break down the task into a smaller task when people are getting started. Uh, you want them to at least have some degree of success. And so by sending them simply to the lost house of Israel, he's sending them to people that have a lot of common ground with them. Right? They don't have to argue in the existence of the God who created the heavens and the earth. They don't have to argue that the scriptures are the word of God. Uh, they don't have to deal with Stoicism and Platonism and all aspects of uh, pagan religion and all those sorts of questions that would have made their mission so much more complicated. The simpler mission of sending to people who in principle have a shared cultural set of values, a shared religion, and a shared authority in the living God makes it much more likely that this mission will be a success and that will prepare them to go out into far more wide-ranging missions in the future. For now, the disciples have one mission, and for that mission, they are given one message. Jesus commands in verse 7, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we're told that's actually how John uh, began his own ministry and what he was about. John the Baptist went around preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we see Jesus comes with the very same message. Jesus comes saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now Jesus is sending out his disciples and he's telling them, stick with the script. Right? I'm not calling you to be creative. I'm calling you to give my message out to the lost sheep of the fallen house of Israel. Now, you probably notice that Matthew doesn't explicitly include the command to repent as part of the message. Uh, nevertheless, it's clearly implied. The whole reason why Jesus is sending these disciples out is to call these wandering sheep from wandering to be turned back to him. And that's what repentance is all about. Yet, what exactly would the disciples be preaching? Um, I want to suggest it's not like they just walk through town just repeating this one line over and over again. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
So, so what would that message have meant in a bigger context? What, what would, how would they fill out what that meant to the people who were listening to him, to them? Well, first and foremost, they were announcing that the king had come. Um, that's so simple, I don't want you to miss that. First and foremost, they were announcing that the king had come. And John the Baptist had done the very same thing, right? They have the same message as John. Remember that when John the Baptist came proclaiming the kingdom of God, John pointed at Jesus and proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? He talks about Jesus. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Then on the very next day, when John was standing with two of his disciples, he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and once again he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Beloved, this apparently simple truth is vital for us to grasp. We do not proclaim Christianity. You know, that's, that's been a real problem in the church. We do not proclaim Christianity. We proclaim him. We preach Christ crucified and raised from the dead. See, Jesus Christ is not a nice bonus feature in the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is the whole point of the kingdom of God. So first and foremost, they would have been proclaiming that the king is come. Nevertheless, for those who respond to this message... Jesus gives us his teaching, which we are, call, are to call the sheep to live by, right? So we proclaim the king, and then when people say, okay, now I need to bow my knee to the king, how do I follow him? And we don't make it up. We say Jesus has taught us exactly how to do that. And so that the best they could in the power of the Holy Spirit, the disciples would have been teaching the crowds the astonishing things that they had learned from Jesus in the sermon on the Mount. Um, given what's going on right now in North American Christianity, uh, we should probably notice something that Jesus does not tell his disciples. You know, it's always dangerous to talk about something that's not in the text, something he doesn't say, but, but, I, but I think there's a clear implication of this in the passage. We ought to notice that something that Jesus does not tell his disciples. Jesus does not encourage his disciples to be creative and to tailor their message so that it speaks to people in culturally relevant ways. Nor does Jesus tell them how important it is for them to be winsome as they proclaim his message as though winsomeness is the power of God unto salvation. Yes, we ought to be wise in how we seek to present the gospel. Right? We're not being more faithful if we're not doing that. We ought to be wise in how we seek to present the gospel but we must guard ourselves against a particularly American temptation 
which is to imagine if we get the methods right, we will get the right outcome. As though the power of God is in our methods rather than in the message. It is the gospel which is the power of God on his salvation. And if we understand that all the power to bring people into the church to change their hearts so that they're worshiping God day and night in spirit and in truth rests with God, who acts through his word and through his spirit, we will focus far more on the message and far less on the methods. Therefore, our fundamental call that Jesus is laying on our lives is not to be creative. It is simply to be faithful. For there is one mission and there is one message. This raises a question, though. How will the lost sheep recognize that the apostles actually are the authoritative representatives of Jesus Christ? Uh, I want to say, in some sense, this is a mysterious thing. I remember years ago, when I first started preaching here, I was still finishing my last year at Gordon-Conwell, and I was talking to one of the students there, you know, talked about how there were very few people here at the time. And um, I don't think in a bad way, but the student asked me, so what are you going to do to build this church up? And I said, nothing. Well, not quite nothing, but I did tell him that the only church that's worth joining is a church that Jesus is building, Right? I can't build the church. But I am confident that as God's word is read and preached faithfully, God's sheep hear his voice in his word. And you can't write a formula for that. There's a bit of mystery about how God does this. But the truth is, is as God's word goes out and it's taught clearly and faithfully, God calls the lost into his kingdom and he also gathers his sheep. Because as Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. Um, That is the ordinary way in which Christ is building his church today. I I say ordinary, but of course you realize it really is quite extraordinary. And yet because this mission of the apostles is of historical significance, it's, it's a huge turning point in the history of the church, Jesus does more than say, as you go out, people will just know they'll know that you are my representatives because you are speaking my truth. So Jesus empowers his disciples with what I am calling signs of the apostles. Now please look at verse 8 with me. Jesus says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You have received without paying, Give without pay. Do you wonder what the 12 were thinking as they heard this? Um, They wouldn't be surprised at all as they traveled throughout Israel, but they would encounter the sick, right? Um, They wouldn't be surprised at all that they would be encountering those who are grieving the recent loss of loved ones, lepers, and even those who were demon-possessed, although that last category might have given them just a little bit of pause. But what they could, could they possibly make out of Jesus saying this, as for the sick, heal them. As for the dead, raise them, and so on. I, I kind of wonder if any of them had enough courage to say, um, Lord, you know, we don't actually have any experience about raising the dead. I mean... This is kind of an overwhelming mission you're sending us out on. 
Nevertheless, 20 centuries later, I think the point is obvious to us. These were all things that Jesus had already been doing. This is a central piece to get when we understand what Jesus is doing through these apostles. These were all things that Jesus had already been doing. So as the disciples go out, they are not going to minister in their own power, but in his. Therefore, Jesus was going to do the same sort of miracles through them that he was doing directly in his own ministry. Now, it is important for us to remember that these supernatural works are distinctly signs of the apostles. Uh, It would have been really strange and, frankly, um, perhaps a bit disconcerting to Pastor Woods if while he was here and we were interviewing him, we were seeking to discern whether or not to call him to be our associate pastor, if we asked him questions like, well, how many lepers have you cleansed? You know, and uh, just a ballpark figure. Can you tell us how many people have you raised from the dead? But the point is, is those aren't things for ordinary ministry today. Uh, if someone's telling you that on television, please don't send them your money. That's just not true. These are signs of the apostles. This is Jesus doing this work through his appointed representatives. Now, we're going to say more about this in a moment. But this is a good place to note that we cannot simply take everything that we read in the Bible and apply it directly to ourselves. This passage is God's word for us, but it is not God's word about us. It is for us because it's first and foremost about Jesus doing something distinct in those who will become foundation stones in the new Jerusalem. Uh, Jeffrey Gibbs says it well. The power and commission given to the twelve testifies to their historical uniqueness. One searches the rest of the New Testament in vain for promises that such signs as raising the dead will always accompany the preaching of the good news in Jesus. Just as John the Baptist played a unique role in salvation history as the voice crying in the wilderness and Elijah prophesied of old, so also the twelve play a unique role in God's plan to forgive and restore and heal a broken people and a broken world. We can't simply take what was told to them and imagine that Jesus is making the same promises to us. And just as Jesus gives the 12 a unique mission, he also gives them a surprising set of instructions for how they are to carry this mission out. Uh, Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. Verse 9 and 10. Jesus says, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Now, it isn't immediately obvious why Jesus gives these instructions. And uh, so some very good scholars have suggested this mission is so urgent, Jesus is saying, don't slow down to do anything else. The The mission is urgent. But but I don't really think that fits what's going on. Um, The problem with that is it doesn't really take a lot of time to pick up an extra pair of sandals or or a staff, right? Jesus isn't saying, don't fill out a wagon train, right? Something's going to take you a long time to do. He's actually saying, don't take with you those things that you might consider to be necessary things, even for the short trip that I am sending you on. So why is Jesus forbidding his disciples from taking these basic necessities of life 
as they head out on this important mission. I want to suggest that the lack of provisions is part of their training. Jesus is calling us, and in particular here calling them, to trust him to do mighty signs through them. Signs which will authenticate that they are his messengers. And Jesus is calling them to trust him that as they go out on this mission, he will provide for their needs. And that will train them for going out on far broader missions in the future where, in fact, he will tell them, you know, bring a staff, bring a bag, be prepared. But you think about Paul traveling around the Mediterranean. He kept going to places he'd never been before. And he had to trust that God would provide for him wherever he went. In fact, Jesus is telling them how he is going to provide for them. Although the house of Israel is fallen, there is a remnant of faithful believers. There are people in all these towns who have heard about Jesus and who are trusting the Lord. They will open their houses and provide the disciples with both shelter and food. Now, because this passage has been abused throughout church history, uh, particularly, by the way, in the post-Reformation era, but earlier as well, um, it's important for us to recognize that this is a unique set of provisions for a unique mission, right? Jesus is not saying that whenever you go on mission, you should make no provision for yourself. In fact, right after Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says this, Now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now, those two directions are in conflict with one another because Jesus is giving them in two different circumstances. And we cannot just pluck either one we want out and go, well, that's the one that applies to us. Why is this important? Uh, I wonder how many of you have heard about so-called faith ministries. I mean, it sounds good because we really do need to have faith in order to engage in ministry. But there have been people in church history, and as I say, particularly in the post-Reformation era, who set out to do things with no planning, with, with no sense that they have a responsibility to make decisions, to be wise and steward God's resources. And they say, we're just going out in faith. God will provide. But, beloved, you know, um, faith requires you to trust God. That means you can only trust God for things God has promised to you. And if God hasn't promised this to you, it's not faith. Now, I, I want to say that we often take risks in life there's nothing wrong with stepping out to try to engage in some sort of ministry and realize it's just a risk, right? But the reason why that distinction is important is when you step out and it doesn't work, you don't want to come back and say, I trusted Jesus and he let me down. Because you weren't trusting Jesus for the conclusion. I mean, I hope you're trusting Jesus all through your life. You're trusting him to be with you whether you succeed or fail. But it is only faith if God has actually made you a promise and he sends you out and says, take nothing with you, and I will provide. And that, of course, is what he's doing here with his disciples. Uh, don't, be, don't make um, faith into a superstition. You know, um, if you have money to buy a fishing rod and you want to buy a fishing rod, it's okay. Go buy a fishing rod. You don't have to say, I prayed to the Lord and the Lord led me to buy a fishing rod. That, that really is not healthy at all. Uh, it might also be worth noting that this passage is not teaching that all missionaries should be poor, uh, that they should only um, get 
room and board as they go along and never accumulate any money at all. Uh, that is not what Jesus is saying. This is specific directions for a specific mission. In fact, the Apostle Paul will later quote from verse 10 in support of paying both ministers and missionaries and, in fact, paying them well. Paul writes, But the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Right? It's not wrong to pay missionaries. And we should not expect that when we send people to the foreign mission field, that they should go there to starve and come home and be nearly destitute. That, that would dishonor us, given our own financial condition and our ability to support them better. I should add, this is not good advice from a book on church management. Or, or even from our uh, form of government. This is the express command of the Lord of hosts. In the same way the Lord is commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Nevertheless, that's not the point of this passage. That's an aside. The key thing in this passage is the disciples are simply spreading Christ's own mission. Right? That's, that's the key thing for us to see. It is not that the Lord will provide abundantly for the twelve. The key reality is that the apostles are simply extending Christ's own mission. They therefore have one mission and one message. And the twelve go out with the promise that Christ will both validate their ministry through remarkable signs that I'm calling the signs of the apostles. And he will also provide for them as they go. Now, the fact that the disciples are Christ's official representatives points to a critical truth. Those who receive them receive Christ and therefore receive the Father who sent Jesus into this world. And those who reject the apostles reject Christ. And therefore, they are without hope and without God in this world. The disciples are therefore bringing a crisis with them everywhere that they go. They are proclaiming God's truth. They are representing the king. And how people respond to that truth and to this king will have eternal consequences. Uh, look at verses 11 through 14 with me. Verses 11 through 14. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Well, what is it that makes a person worthy? It is not that they have a great reputation in the town. Either a reputation for civil virtue or a great reputation for their own personal piety. The only thing that makes people worthy is they receive the message and they receive the messengers. Right? If they receive the message of the apostles and therefore receive Christ, they are worthy. Our Lord will say much more about this later in the chapter, so Lord willing, we'll look at it then. But Jesus is already preparing his disciples for the reality that while some of their fellow Jews will receive them, 
many of their fellow Jews will reject them. What do the disciples bring to those who open their homes to them? It's got an interesting question. We have a hospitality here, generous hospitality. Stay with us as long as you want. We'll feed you. We'll take care of you. What do the disciples bring? They bring Christ's benediction on their own lips. They bring a benediction of shalom. I say shalom because we often think of peace simply in the absence of conflict, but but the peace that Jesus is talking about here is a fullness of well-being. They bring a benediction of shalom. And this um, blessing is not an empty benediction. It is no mere formality. They are bringing an effective blessing which goes out and takes effect. As Jesus will later say, uh, if you give just a glass of cold water to one of my disciples in my name, the person who does that will by no means lose their reward. And we say, how much more of those who actually welcome as authoritative representatives into their home and show them such hospitality? The blessing of the Lord will be upon that house. Let us remember these messengers come in the name of the Lord and they come with his authority. Therefore, their presence and their words bring about a tremendous crisis. People will either embrace them and receive Christ's blessing, or they will reject them and fall under our Lord's condemnation. How serious are the consequences of rejecting the Lord's authoritative messengers? Look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15. There the king of kings makes this solemn declaration. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Beloved, we live in an age which trifles with Jesus. Even in the church. We live in an age which trifles with Jesus. We therefore need to be reminded that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yet we also need to be careful in applying the sober and powerful truth. If a person rejects me and joins First Baptist Church, right, or All Saints Anglican Church out in Amesbury, or the Missouri Synod Church a little bit south of us, that's just fine. I, after all, am not an apostle. But if that person rejects the apostles and their teaching, if that person refuses to embrace the Christ that they preach, if that person refuses to unite with an apostolic church, that is a church built on the apostolic teaching and doctrine, there's nothing left for that person but the eternal wrath of Almighty God. If Sodom and Gomorrah should be burned to ashes for their wickedness, when they had never heard the gospel, how much greater judgment is due to those who trample the blood of Jesus Christ underfoot as though it were an unclean thing? Beloved, this is not only a profound warning for those who do not believe, it is also a wake-up call for us who do. Jesus Christ has come into this world and all of history has been turned on a great hinge. We dare not go back to living 
as though Jesus is a nice add-on and the point of our lives lies somewhere else. We dare not go back to living for a world that is passing away when the king has come and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Indeed, beloved, today is the perfect day for each of us to evaluate how we are spending our lives in light of eternity. For as R.C. Sproul used to remind us, right now counts forever. Amen.